I'm going to periodically ask, because each section is a little larger, I'm going to periodically be asking different folks to read the scripture for us. So this morning I've asked Dave Cooper to read the Bible for us this morning, Judges 2, 6 through 3, 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals, and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed to them, bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Bahal, Hermon, as far as Libo Hamath. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for writing your word, for giving us this account of your people and their slide into apostasy that we might not follow their example. God, thank you for giving us your word to help us understand our own hearts, to help us see you, and Lord, to help us see your mercy. God, I pray that you would enable each and every one of us to hear your word as a fresh word for us today. And God, I pray that you would enable me to preach your word by your Holy Spirit. All of this is by your grace, Lord, and all of this is only possible through your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask for your spirit to come. Minister to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I still remember watching an old show in the very early 80s, maybe the late 70s. Um, it was called Quincy M.E. Does anybody, anybody old remember that show, Quincy? Um, it was a show uh, about a medical examiner. That's what the M.E. stood for. And he would often solve murders based on the autopsy. So they do an autopsy of, his victim, of the victims. And then what at first seemed completely mysterious and um, unexplainable became clear once the facts of the death were understood more clearly. And then from the cause of death, he was able to understand um, what perhaps caused that person to be killed and then who did it, and, and, and the story unfolded from there. But it first often would start with an autopsy. And what seemed absolutely confounding at the end became clear. What we're given in this passage is really the second introduction to the book of Judges, and, and it's really kind of a spiritual autopsy of the book of Judges. It's an introduction showing here is what happens. You know, in the first chapter we saw, here's what happened militarily. The people did not obey. They didn't conquer. They didn't do what the Lord said. And now here's what we see is that an autopsy really of the spiritual causes of death. The spiritual reasons that, that led to the demise of the people of Israel. And it seems absolutely confounding. If you read through the book of Judges, you're like, how in the world could God's chosen, called people, how could they end this badly? How could they end in utter decimation? The body of God's people of a whole, as a whole, it kind of ends the book. And that's how this passage summarizes really the entire book at the very end. It, it summarizes it with the fact that, that the people had, had intermarried. They were given over to idolatry and they lived amongst the people of the land. And the implications is they were no longer living as God's people. They were trapped in idolatry. And it's shocking. And you wonder, how, how did this happen? And so the reason why we're given this passage is to help us understand how God's people who are called by his name, how could they become like the Israelites and then also to help us see how not to follow their example. It serves really as some spiritual reasons for their disobedience, this, this spiritual autopsy. And it's important for us to see because this isn't just history. This is history, but it's, it's written with a theological intent. It's not just so we can say, oh, how terrible those Israelites were. They were so bad. I can't believe how bad they were. No, it's meant to serve really as a warning for us and for us to be able to understand our own hearts. British statesman Winston Churchill, he once said that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this book is written so that we're not doomed to repeat it. 
verses 6 through 10 really show us this introduction these generations of Joshua who served the Lord, and it tells us this, this preface, really. This is how things started. This is how things started as Israel came into the land. All these generations of Joshua, they served the Lord wholeheartedly, and then it concludes at the very end with the children of Israel are given over to idolatry and intermarriage with the world around them. And they kind of serve as a summary of the whole book. What began well ends in utter idolatry obliteration of the identity of God's people, really a spiritual death. And really the preliminary autopsy report, if you will, that we see in this passage, that the the examiner of our hearts, he reveals, and it's something important to us, what he's revealing is that ignorance of God, it leads to idolatry and intermarriage with the world. See, it's ignorance of God that led to their idolatry, and that idolatry led to intermarriage with the world. But it didn't start that way. The generations of Joshua, it says, served the Lord. He had promised, he he brought them into their inheritance. He He had given them an inheritance, he brought them into their inheritance, just like he promised back in Exodus 32. He says, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I'll give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. And now we see they divided things up and they're moving in. They're receiving this this divine inheritance. It's like God's will has been written and they're receiving it right now and they're going into the land, they're they're taking possession, but they still had to fight. They still had to take it. They still had to possess it even though the inheritance had been given to them. They still had to establish permanent settlements. They had to still be fruitful and multiply in the land. And so we see these people who had seen the great works. I love what it says in in these first opening verses in 7 through 10. These people, they served the days, all the days of Joshua. Why why were they serving him? It's because they'd seen all the great works that God had done. They, They had known the Lord God personally. They had seen his redeeming grace. They had seen his power that delivered them out of Egypt. They had heard tales from their fathers about how God brought them through the Red Sea, delivered them. They had seen God leading them through the wilderness by a a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds. They had seen God's provision. They had seen God topple all their enemies and, and bring them into the land. But here's the scary thing, if you're a parent at least, or really if you're a Christian making disciples, if you're a Christian parent, the scary thing is this entire generation who are alive at the time, they'd seen Yahweh, they'd seen the Lord of heaven and earth, but for some reason this entire generation as a whole didn't pass along the knowledge of God. They didn't pass along the the works the Lord had done for Israel. Look down in, in, in your Bibles. It says in the second half of verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. He did not know the Lord or the work they had done for Israel. How could that happen? How could that happen? This this great nation, this great people who were a testimony to God's calling, who were a testimony to God's goodness, who were a testimony to God's power, all of a sudden, in a few generations, we just see them crumbling. Back in, in 2008, there was a show that premiered on the History Channel. It was their biggest show ever. It was called Life After People. And uh, one show 
one site summarizes the show saying, life after people, it, it, it focused on scientists and mechanical engineers and other experts speculating about what may become a planet Earth if humans suddenly disappeared. And, and the experts talked about the impact of, of human existence, absence on the environment and the vestiges of civilization thus left behind. And so then it began to use real-life examples like Chernobyl and other places where when humans have withdrawn, how nature took back over again. And what we see in this passage really is when the presence and the knowledge of God has left, when the people no longer knew God or knew of his works, it very quickly devolved. And sin nature took back over again. This section really could be called life after knowing God. You see, it only took a generation after the great generation of Joshua, the generation that that came into the promised land, that took possession of things. It only took a generation after that for them to lose the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his works. And this generation after Joshua wasn't just a different generation in time. It was a a generation of a different character. And and it gives us two primary reasons, really. They didn't obey the command that that God had given to Joshua. Back in Deuteronomy 6, he says, When your son asks you in times to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? He says, Then you shall say to your son... We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. But somehow, that didn't happen. They didn't tell their children. Maybe they assumed the children would just follow them in serving the Lord. Maybe they just thought that their kids would, would see their example. And then so they would, maybe they believed the old adage that, that more is caught than taught. But teaching has to happen too. Because otherwise, what's seen is not understood. And so maybe they just weren't intentional about sharing their experiences. Maybe with their children. Maybe they weren't intentional about teaching them all that God had done. For whatever the reason, there is an indictment here two ways. The first indictment is on the generation before. They had seen all the works of God and somehow their descendants neither knew God nor knew his works. Those are sobering words. For all of us who are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, whether you are a physical parent or whether you have the responsibility of bringing others to the faith and being a spiritual parent, we have a responsibility to pass on to the next generation the knowledge of God, not just a head knowledge, not just facts about God, but really our experience. So here is what we know about God. Here's how we know God to be true. Here's how we've seen God to be faithful in our own lives. Here's how we understand scripture. Here's all the deeds of old. Here's, here's all the things that God has done all throughout history. Here's all the things God's done in my life. I need to pass those things on and ensure that they too understand a real and right knowledge of God. But it wasn't all on that previous generation. No, there was an indictment on the upcoming generation as well. Because it it talks about knowing God. They didn't know God. 
Now, the knowing of God that it's talking about, it's not just his head knowledge, it's not just knowing facts about God, but it's, it's having a personal relationship, having an intimate relationship with God. They, they might have heard about God, but they didn't have a relationship with him, and they didn't understand all the works of God and didn't apply those to their lives. And why I say this is just knowing is a personal relationship, because it talks about the same kind of thing, the same kind of problem in, in 1 Samuel. He refers in 1 Samuel 2.12 to the sons of Eli. They were priests of Yahweh. They ministered in the tabernacle. They were priests of Yahweh. But they were disgusting people. They did all kinds of heinous acts. They abused and misused. They defiled the tabernacle. In 1 Samuel 2.12 it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, These men who were priests of God, they knew about him. But here's the indictment. It says, they did not know the Lord. You see, mere knowledge about God, merely going through the motions, merely doing all the right things is not enough. There needs to be a personal, intimate knowledge of God ourselves. So the question for each and every one of us should be twofold. Are, Are we passing along such knowledge? Are we letting people know about the works of God? And then also for us, do we have a personal knowledge of God or are we like this generation or the sons of Eli that just, we can go through the motions, we can even serve in the temple. We can even, even handle all of the holy things of God. We can, we can sing on Sunday mornings, we can open the Bible, but unless there's a real and true knowledge of God, it's going to lead us away from serving God, from loving God. The Israelites didn't know Yahweh personally they chose to follow after false gods because of that and the direct result of not knowing the lord in his works it's spelled out in the next verses look in verse 11 it says the people of israel do what was evil in the sight of the lord because they didn't know god they did what was evil and it led to idolatry it says they served the baals and god had commanded them not to have any other gods before him in exodus 20 and yet now we see this so quickly. They turn to worshiping these Baals. They turn to practical things. They turn to what the nations around them were doing. You see, um, it was a very agrarian society. The Israelites, they had been wandering in the desert for, for 40 years. This is their first foray, really, to be established as farmers. And so they go into this land, and they meet the Canaanites there, and they kind of put up with them. They tolerate them. They see that these Canaanites are pretty decent farmers. And, and what's the reason for their success? And the Canaanites would say, well, we have these gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and that's the male and female deities of Canaan. And, and they were tied to fornication and other adulterous practices. And they say, well, if we appease these gods, then we have good crops. We have rain and things grow. And so the Israelites thought, hey, well, maybe that's practical. And it seems sensible. And so they turned from knowing God subtly to idolatry. I doubt that the Canaanites were walking around with little statues door to door and saying, hey, by the way, have you seen this idol? I doubt it started like that. Now, it, it ended like that with them actually taking idols and worshiping them, but, but it probably began with this just appeasing and looking for an easy way, looking for a way that seemed to work for the people around them. See, if you don't know God, you're going to turn to practical things. You're going to turn to other ways of living, things that seem more right in your eyes. And that's what we're all tempted to do. If, if we don't rely on the knowledge of God, if we don't remember his works, we're going to be easily tempted into idolatry. And there's this progression from a lack of knowledge of God and his ways to doing evil and serving false gods. 
And the lesson for us is if you don't know that the Lord God is the one true God, you're going to be tempted to serve other gods. What gods are you tempted to serve? What gods of expediency and practicality are you tempted by? If you don't go the only God, the giver of life himself, then you can look to other places for life. If you don't know that God is our, our true joy, our true source of hope, our true source of contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction, then you're going to be tempted. If you don't know God personally that way, if you don't know God intimately that way, you're going to be tempted to look to other places for contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment and success. If you don't know the God of peace personally, you're going to be tempted to look for peace elsewhere. If you don't know that God's the ultimate provider, he's the ultimate protector, he is the one who's the giver of life, who, who alone, if you don't know and see that he alone is, is all powerful, he is all able, he is all loving, that, that he wants our good. If you don't see and know those things and know his works, then you're going to be tempted to idolatry and to look for provision and satisfaction and protection and other things to give to you what God alone was meant to give. Not knowing God, not knowing his works, it leads to idolatry. If you don't think that God is enough, you're going to abandon him for false gods. Where are you tempted to turn from the knowledge of God to look to be satisfied by other gods? That's how we're meant to be reading this, to, to check ourselves and say, wait a minute, they, they didn't know God. They didn't know his works. And that quickly led them away. You know, you might want to, evaluate your own life and say, where am I tempted after false gods? So that would reveal, hey, where am I seeing that I don't know God enough? I don't see his, that he's my provider, that he is the sustainer of life, that he's the giver of life, that I don't see that, that he loves me, that, that I find fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And then the response would be to draw in to know God, to see him and to meditate on his works, to find satisfaction in him. The drift here, it's not passive. You see, God was the one who brought them out of Egypt. He had, he had delivered them out of slavery when, when no one else could deliver them. And look at look in verse 12. It says, they abandoned. This is not passive. They abandoned. And it says that twice. In verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. In verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherahs. They chose not to serve the God they knew about but did not know. And they turned away. They abandoned him. They left him behind. And you know, it's tempting to leave God behind if it feels like he doesn't get us what we think we deserve or need or want, isn't it? Where are you tempted to look? Where are you tempted to feel like God has not given you what you need? God has not given you what you want. God has not given you what deserve, what you deserve. Don't abandon God. They left him behind, and the imagery is, is like a faithful wife leaving, I mean, a, faithful, a, a wife leaving her faithful husband behind, a husband who'd always and only been good, a husband who'd always and only been a protector, a provider, a husband who'd, who'd only been perfectly, <clears throat> perfectly loving, perfectly faithful to his covenant, and it's abandoning those marriage vows. And imagine if, if you were perfect, if you are always faithful, if you are always good, if you're always loving and gracious, always giving and kind, something's hard for us to imagine because I don't, I'm, there's no one here who's been always those things. But you see, God is the loving Father 
He's also the loving husband of his people. And if our spouse was to break our marriage vows and, and break the covenant that they, that they made before God and go in the arms of somebody else, it would be right for us to be angry, wouldn't it? And that's why it says they provoke the Lord to anger. Now this kind of anger that it's talking about is not this kind of um, irrational anger where um, God's losing his mind, he's losing control. No, this is a righteous, justified anger. And so we see this, this secondary finding, if you will, from the autopsy report on the spiritual death of God's people. And this secondary finding is that idolatry and intermarriage with the world, it leads to ire. Idolatry and intermarriage with the world leads to ire. Now that word ire, it just, it just means wrath and anger. And we see that God's people have indeed earned his ire, his justified wrath, his justified anger. You can see that both in, in 2, 14 to 15 and in 2, 20 to 3, 4. Though both of those sections really, the wrath of God, the justified good wrath of God against his people's apostasy, against his people's abandoning him. Because you know why? It's not good to abandon God. And so God gets angry, and he, there's consequences that he, that he pours out that he's actually promised to do already that's meant to draw us back to him. And any, any discipline that the people of God experience, it, it's not discipline that's capricious, it's discipline that's meant to put, point us back to God, to bring us back to him, to see that we need him, that we can't abandon him, that he truly is the only good source of our hope. And so that's what he does in this passage. And look in verse 15, it says, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. So even in his anger, he is being covenantly faithful. His anger is actually a means of covenant faithfulness. God warned them, he swore to them, this is what I'll do if you don't. This is what I'll do if you abandon because it's not good and you need incentive to not abandon God because our life is a mess when we turn away from God. And so his angry response is fully justified and it's controlled though. And as God continued to be faithful to his promise and to what he'd sworn to them. If you entered into a covenant, now it's a lot different but if you entered into a covenant with someone to buy a house, maybe you've done that recently, you'd be on the hook to buy that house and there'd be penalties for trying to back out. And that'd be right and that'd be good. It's an incentive to complete your covenant. And so we see this, this Lord's response in verse 20 to 3, 4. This Lord's response of anger is for their covenant breaking. And twice in the passage, he highlights that the Lord's response of anger, his anger is a direct result of the people's apostasy. It's the consequence of people breaking their covenant with God. In verse 20, the crime is laid out. Look down your Bible, it says, the crime is kind of laid out in verse 20. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, the crime is laid out in the verses 21 to 22, their punishment's announced. And the judgment is horrifying. And it's meant to horrify us. It's a horrifying judgment. The people broke his covenant, they disobeyed God, and he says, I will no longer, because of that, I'm not going to drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. What a devastating consequence, because they could not do that on their own. There's no way they could rid themselves of evil unless God was going to do that. There's, there's no way that they could get rid of idolatry unless God was going to enable them to do that. But even his judgment was meant to be redemptive. 
Look in verse 22. He says it was to test them. Now, this is not the kind of testing where God's like, I'm going to see if this is really true or not. No, this is so that their faith could be tested so that they would say, hey, are we really trusting in God? Are we really having, are we taking care to walk in his commandments and obey him? It was, it was to give them an opportunity to obey God, to see if their faith was genuine and to show them really the depths of their unfaithfulness and to affirm the justice of God. This is what this testing was all about. And it was also to train them and teach them how to fight. So in the first chapter, we saw that there, there were the remnants of these nations still remained. Why did God do that? Because he wanted them to grow strong. He wanted them to learn how to combat their enemies. And, and for us, why, why does remain, sin remain? Why do we have this, this doctrine of remaining sin that we talk about? Because God wants us to grow in trusting him. He wants us to go strong in the faith, and he wants us to learn how to combat the evil all around us and the evil that lies within. But verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, they're like a report card of the test. And it's a really bad report card. If there was an F minus, it's an F minus. They failed their tests miserably time after time. And then we see in this, this epitaph, really, though, on the gravestone of the people of Israel it says, so the people of Israel, they lived among the Canaanites. They lived amongst all these pagans, and they weren't, they weren't proselytizing them. They weren't leading them to God. It says, no, their daughters, they took themselves for wives, and their own daughters, they gave as sons, and they served their gods. And really what it's saying is that they weren't serving God anymore. They were serving all these other gods. They'd known the prohibition in Deuteronomy 7 about not intermarrying. They'd known the prohibition about not following after other gods, and yet they had accommodated, they'd integrated with the world around them. How do we accommodate the world around us? It must have been easier. There was probably a lot more Canaanite women. They might have even been more attractive than their daughters, or vice versa. There's a lot more Canaanite sons. They might have been more successful. There might have been good reasons to follow after these other gods, and yet the people that God had bought, they sold out to the world. They assimilated. They become, became acclimated to the world around them. You know, for us today, how, how, how are we tempted to assimilate? To kind of, kind of not, I don't mean like being in the world that, like salt and light, but just kind of fitting in with the world around you. Just sliding in and being like the world around you, adopting the worldly practices and worldly customs, adopting the ways of the world because it's just simply easier. We see really the, the downfall of God's people, but that's not really the main focus of the passage. And I want to show you something that sometimes, um, especially in Old Testament narrative, when you look at the structure of a passage, it can help you see the main idea. And sometimes that structure is hard to get. But if you look at the structure, I've kind of laid it out here for you. And so we see at the very beginning there's a preface. The generation of Joshua served the Lord. In the beginning, really, the meat of the passage is the slide into apostasy. The next section, we see the Lord's response of anger. And then parallel to that in verse 20 to 34, the Lord's response of anger and then the end, the, the summary chapter is really the, the parallel to the beginning, the slide into apostasy. We see the result of that is the acceptance of idolatry or apostasy through intermarriage. But yet right in the center of the passage really is this thing that should stick out to you. It's this thing that should stick out to each and every one of us who are reading this. And it's really the Lord's undeserved, merciful salvation. 
And really the summary finding of the apostasy autopsy report really, it's just that in the midst of idolatry, right in the midst of their idolatry and intermarriage, in the middle of this passage, in the midst of the people's idolatry and intermarriage, God gives his people inordinate mercy. Because that's the kind of God we serve. In the midst of idolatry and intermarriage, God gives his people inordinate mercy. Inordinate mercy and unrestrained, not, not within any proper or reasonable limits. It's immoderate. It's excessive. God's mercy here should strike us that way. This is not right. It's not even reasonable of God. It's, it's immoderate. It's, it's excessive. It's unrestrained. And it doesn't make sense unless you understand the character and nature of God. That he's, he's not angry because he's just wanting to punish them. He's, his anger and his punishment is to lead us to receive his mercy. The consequences the people of Israel received, they were all, by all accounts, they were just, they were fair. But what was neither just nor fair is how we see the Lord responding in the middle of this passage. In verses 16 to 18, and look down your Bibles here. We see the Lord shows extreme mercy to them. And, and, and you have to wonder why. Is this because they turned and they repented? Is this because the people of Israel, they changed their ways? Because they, they reformed themselves? Because they did things to make God pleased with them? Is, this, is, that, is that why? He was merciful to them? No. It tells us, look down at verse 18. It says, God was moved to pity by their groaning. They are groaning out of misery, not repentance. In this word for groaning, it's only used three other times in the whole Old Testament. And two of those other times is in Exodus, in Exodus 2.24 and 6.5. And, and where it's used, the people were groaning under the burden of Egyptian slavery. And God heard their groans and had mercy and delivered them. It's so good to see that pattern because we, we serve a God who is the same yesterday and today and forever, a God who hears our groans. He, he doesn't rescue us. He doesn't deliver us. He doesn't provide salvation because we have enough faith, because we've done enough works, because we are impressive to him, because we reformed our ways. No, he extends mercy to us because he hears our groanings and he has pity. He has mercy on us. And God, out of mercy and compassion, it says he raised up judges who saved them. And the word for judges here, by the way, when you're reading throughout, and this is, this is why this is an introduction still, when you're reading throughout the entire book, the, the book is, is really, in English at least, badly named. Judges is a little misleading for us in the English language because when we hear the word judge, we might think of like Judge Judy or Judge Wapner or the People's Court or something like that. But you don't see that in any of these judges. In all 12 of these judges, you don't see that. We only see one little small piece, maybe, in Deborah where she adjudicates, but really that's not her primary purpose. And, and that's not the primary purpose of any of the judges. They're really, they function as deliverers or saviors. They are, they are appointed as judges to save. And what they're judging is they're judging the nations around them. They're judging God's enemies. And so they're, they're agents of God's wrath on his enemies. So that's how Samson judges, right? He takes the jawbone of a donkey, and he slays people. How is that judging? Well, he's, he's judging the evil of God's enemies. And so we see these judges really are deliverers. They deliver God's people from the enemies around them. You could really call this, this whole book a, a, a book of, of tribal deliverers or tribal saviors. And then what we see, though, is, is God, he, he, he gives them these 
deliverers. And you can even see that in verse 18. He says, he, he raised up judges and, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. That, that's the purpose of the judges, is to save the people from their enemies. And, and this, this, this whole book, though, it shows the cycle that explains here, the beginning of the cycle in verse 18, 19. It, it, this cycle of, of people having a judge, the judge delivering them from their enemies, but as soon as the judge dies, they turn back to their old ways. And this book includes cycles of disobedient apostasy that lead to discipline and cries of pain and deliverance. And six different times we're going to see that throughout the book. And what is it emphasizing? Emphasizing the need for God and his faithfulness. It's, it's emphasizing the need for a covenant-keeping deliverer who will never die. It's emphasizing the need for a deliverer who won't fail them and for a people who will remain faithful. It, it, it emphasizes the need for someone to keep them faithful. And as you go through the book, it's important for us to remember that this, the writer is not endorsing all the terrible things that he's going to write about. Sin is not reveled in. It's meant to show us the true horror of sin, the true horror of turning away from God, abandoning God, turning to our own ways, doing what's right in our own eyes. And it shows us how God uses people as his agents, even though they're flawed, and all the judges, by the way, are really flawed, It's about God using flawed agents to deliver people. And it, it, it demonstrates really Israel's incessant faithlessness to the Lord. And it shows us what happens when people don't live according to God's commands and, and how cultural decline it leads to social disaster and people coming up to their own, with their own answers in life uh, that lead to social and political and economic disaster. If people walk away from God, there are repercussions. And when, when that which is anti-God comes in and oppresses the people of God and until repentance occurs, deliverance will not occur. And that's what we're going to see cycle after cycle. Judges shows Israel's total failure to be faithful to God's commands. But in doing so, it really, it really highlights something for us. It really highlights God's never-ending mercy and compassion to those who continually fail, to those who don't deserve it. See, in this passage, is setting us up for the rest of the book. Even though they turn and repent, they don't really mean it. They aren't really turning. God's giving mercy to them time after time. He's showing them their need for a savior and deliverer. Why? Because God is merciful and he's compassionate. They were trapped in, in a senseless spiral of sin and they couldn't break free. They were under the power of sin. They needed someone to come and lead them who would never die. They needed someone to set them free from their enslavement to sin. They needed someone to enable them to live to God. They failed to remember God, though. They failed to teach their children about God. They failed time and time again. They didn't obey God. They didn't conquer their enemies. They didn't get rid of the idols. They tolerated the enemies of God. They entered into allegiance with the pagan world. They supplemented the worship of God with the worship of idols. And aren't we tempted in all the same ways? And don't we need someone to rescue us from the spiral of sin that we get caught in? We believe we can worship success, we can worship money, power, popularity, attractiveness, sports, even ideal families alongside with God, as if God won't mind. We can forget the power of God, we can forget his goodness, we can forget the covenant he's made with us in Christ. 
we can forget that it's, it's meant to enable us to obey him and to submit to him and to live for him. When compromised spiritually, it can slowly lead us away from God. And yet, here's the thing. The crux of the passage is focusing on God's mercy. God's continually faithful to them. He's continually faithful to us. He continues to pursue his people by his grace to, to rescue and to save. And, and how can we respond to this passage? Well, we can, we can go back to Ephesians. Most of the church has been reading through Ephesians this past summer. And so in Ephesians 2.12, if you remember, it says in Ephesians 2.12, it calls us to remember who we once were. It says, uh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. <clears throat> That's who we once were. And then we need to remember the rich mercy of God to us that it tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, notice what it doesn't say, not because we cried out, because we were, we were asking. No, we were dead. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, we receive mercy that comes by knowing Jesus Christ personally. Don't fail to know him. Maybe you're here today and you don't know him. Don't fail to know him. Maybe you've heard about him. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home and you have all the knowledge of him, but you've not experienced him personally. And he wants you to experience and to know him personally so that you can experience the immeasurable riches of his grace. You know, in Matthew 121, it, it refers to Jesus and his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's the ultimate savior. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the deliverer, he's the savior, he's the judge in that sense who never dies. He died, and now he's rose again to never die again. He's the only judge that can keep us in him, that can keep us faithful to God, because he never dies. He's the only judge who can keep us in him because he alone has power over sin and death. He alone has conquered sin and death. And so let us respond to God's mercy by drawing close to him by trusting in him. You know, if I was going to give you a main point for this passage and for us today, maybe it's called the main conclusion of the autopsy report on the spiritual death of God's people. It's really this. How would we respond? Know God and his works and respond to his merciful salvation. Know God. Know God personally his works don't be like the people of Israel know God and his works recount his works and then respond to his merciful salvation by living for him flee idolatry don't intermingle with the world know God worship him for his mercy amen well, let's pray and then we'll sing together
Father God, thank you for your, your word. It is good. Thank you for your word, for what it reveals about you, for what it reveals about us, and for revealing to us that you are a merciful God. Lord, I pray that we would know you, know your works, and live for you in response. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thrown into a sea with a bottom or shore.